0: Growing up, my father was a disciplinarian. It made sense, too, like he often would tell me. He didn't want my sister and I having to work in a hot, sweaty factory like he did in order to provide for his family. But even though my father was a disciplinarian, one thing he was not, was somebody who needed to resort to corporal punishment. He never had to spank me. But I still feared my father. And that's actually, I don't like that word, because often when we say fear, what we really mean is a strong respect. And the reason I had this strong respect for my dad is he didn't have to use any physicality on me But whatever he did threaten to do as a consequence for my misbehavior, I knew he would carry it out. As my dad often said, when I was growing up, he wasn't trying to be my friend. He was trying to be my father. Now the factory where my dad worked, it was shift work. Meaning for two weeks a month, my dad worked I think from seven till three. And then for the other two weeks, he worked from 4 to midnight. So it was 7th grade, and it was time for parent-teacher conferences. So my dad told my mom that he would like to go in to the parent-teacher conference by himself. It just so happened that he was working nights. So he was freed up in the early afternoon to attend the conference. And that was rare that he was able to do that. So the conference had two of my teachers. One was a history teacher who I loved and probably is one of the reasons why I'm a history teacher today. He was about my dad's age. And then the other teacher was the English teacher. She was probably in her early 60s. She was very prim and proper, very old school. In fact, so old school She actually was the teacher of my aunt, and I remember my aunt saying that she seemed pretty old even back then. So my dad sat down with my history teacher and my prim and proper English teacher. So they were talking about my grades. There were no issues there. I was doing really well. I was making honor roll, pretty typically straight A's except for art, but that's another podcast episode for another day and then my father said that's good i'm glad that my son's studying he's achieving what he can do well how about behavior and again the history teacher and the english teacher gave a very glowing report i was very respectful to them i was kind to the other students there was never really any issues of concern about my behavior in the classroom now like i said my father never touched me in terms of discipline but he did carry through on threats. The other thing you need to know about my dad you know when they they say when you get older you kind of lose the little filter that says you probably shouldn't say that. I don't think my dad ever had that filter. So it was his turn to respond to the history teacher and English teacher. And he said this, well I'm glad Kevin's doing really well. And to keep him that way I'll tell you what, I'll continue kicking his ass out of school, if you kick his ass in school. The history teacher laughed, and the English teacher looked at him and said, excuse me? Welcome to your parent-teacher conference where a 24-7 parent and full-time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax, grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host, If this is your first time listening, welcome, and what we try to do here at the Parent Teacher Conference is talk about topics in terms of children from both the perspective of a parent, which I am one, I have two daughters, one in high school, one in middle school, as well as a teacher's perspective, and I've been a teacher twice as long as I've been a parent, so I've been a parent for 15 years, I've been a teacher for over 30 And if you're a long-time listener, welcome back. I hope you enjoy this episode. I got to say this off the bat, okay, just so you know. You you might be wondering, how did I know about that story? Well, my dad told me, like the day it happened, when he returned from the parent-teacher conference, he told me exactly what he said. And throughout the years, he continues to remind me. But what he does say is this. He says, I am glad about the man you've turned out to be because I had that attitude. And again, there was never any, there was no, he was never physically threatening to me. But I did know that if he gave a threat, like I was going to lose a privilege, that if I misbehaved, I was going to lose a privilege. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is behavior in schools, or actually an approach to behavior in schools called restorative justice and some of my concerns about it, and even giving some ideas and thoughts of how we should go about discipline, both from a parent and a teacher perspective. Because the reality is, in that parent-teacher conference my dad had, he's basically right. What he's saying is that I'll handle discipline of my child to make sure that he's working to the best of his ability in the classroom, and he's behaving like he should. I'll handle that at home, If you handle it at school, and I think even today that's true, it doesn't work. School discipline and behavior to make sure the school can function as it should and the classroom functions as it should, you need buy-in from the parents. And if the parents don't have a buy-in, if they're not disciplining the child at home, then it's going to fall apart in the classroom. And if the parents aren't disciplining at home, the school's response can't be just drawing up their arms and saying, well, why should we then? Why should we be the parents? That's just a, a bad way to approach it as well. There has to be consequences for bad decisions and bad actions. And we'll get into that in this episode. If you like what you're hearing and you think other people, other teachers, other parents, people interested in education, if you think they need to hear this, please feel free to share this out. You can tell them, look for the Parent Teacher Conference podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google it. When you look at the icon, I am the guy with the baseball hat on with a coffee mug covering my mug. Or you can find, like on Spotify, it's a little box with an arrow pointing up, maybe the three dots on Apple Podcasts. But you can copy this episode and share it out like through a text or an email or even post it on Facebook or Twitter with friends. If they do use the podcast, if they do search for the podcast, tell them this episode is called Truth and Consequences. If you have a question about what I'm saying today, a comment, maybe an agreement, maybe a disagreement, please feel free to email me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's P is in parent, T is in teacher, C is in conference podcast 411. All one word, ptcpodcast four one one. At gmail.com. Now, yesterday, before I began producing this episode, I went back and looked at YouTube videos. I typed in, and this would be something for you to do. Type in, Why are teachers quitting? and you'll get a lot of videos. You'll get a lot of short videos. There's little clips, like about a minute long, and you'll get some more in depth videos. One channel I'll point you to, which I because I think she does a really good job, is teacher therapy. And she's a former teacher. She's a lot younger than me. And she does interviews with people about why they're quitting the profession. And one constant is this. The one, I think the biggest issue that you will hear in those videos, if you watch several of them, the one that will be consistently brought up Is student behavior the lack of consequences? This is a frustration for teachers because they're in the profession to instill a love, a passion, an understanding of the content they're delivering. And for me, it's history. Could be a math teacher, English teacher, art teacher, music teacher, gym teacher. The reason we chose our area is because of a love for that topic and we and usually like I said earlier like the history teacher that was in that parent-teacher conference with my dad because we had a history teacher, a math teacher, an English teacher, a phys ed teacher, a music teacher, an art teacher that had that same love and passion for that topic and it just like engaged us and drew us in and we said you know if i'm going to be a teacher that's what i want to teach because of mr or mrs or miss so and so that's why they're in the classroom and the the other thing is they enjoy working with children and i've said this in past podcasts in 32 years of teaching even the teachers that kids will say are strict, they can't handle, it's not because they hate them or dislike them, because they're mean. When you step back and look at that teacher, or they don't love kids, I should say, it's because that teacher is pushing them more than they want to be pushed. They lo- they love that child enough to push them to their best effort. And that's how they know how to do it. So even... The strictest, or as teacher, kids would say, meanest teachers, for the most part, I would say still enjoy being around young people. In 32 years, I can honestly say there has only been one teacher I've worked with or I question at. Over the hundreds of teachers that I knew enjoyed being around young people. So that's why a teacher is in the profession. They don't want a discipline. I always say this. That's the worst part of my job. I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish everybody was behaved. And I think a lot of teachers would agree with me. But you need to do that. You need to have a managed classroom. And yes, for the teachers who may be listening because they still saw the topic, you need compliance in the classroom in order for that classroom to function as it should. And what's the function of that classroom? Is to engage minds and get them to think about the topic that you're presenting. Any student who is going to disrupt that is not allowing the classroom to function as it should. I think we can agree on that. And any student that consistently brings that outside the classroom, into the hallways, into the lunchroom, into the school culture as, in general, is stopping the school from functioning as it should. So how are we going to deal with that? That's the question. You know, it's from time immemorial that we have issues with misbehavior. It's always going to happen. We're going to have teachers who teach badly, we're going to have students who behave badly. The question really is, since we know that's going to happen in, in, in an imperfect world, how are we going to deal with it? Well, one way that has been brought up in the last couple of years is something called restorative justice. A, a restorative justice, or RJ approach to discipline and behavior within the school building. First thing I'm going to do is define restorative justice from a website, from an article I found on a website from We Are Teachers called, What is restorative justice in schools? Everything educators need to know. And here is how it was defined in one paragraph. Quote, restorative justice is a fundamental change in how you respond to rule violations and misbehavior, said Ron Klassen, an expert and pioneer in the field. The, typic, quote, the typical response to bad behavior is punishment. Restorative justice resolves disciplinary problems in a cooperative and constructive way. End quote. Schools like the one they're mentioning, use a three-tiered approach focused on prevention, intervention, and reintegration. And so what they try to do when they say punishment, I would say avoid consequences for misbehavior. Now they would agree with like restitution, meaning if I took your Pink Stanley cup and bashed it on the ground and broke it or dented it pretty badly or wrote all over it, that I should have to buy you a new Stanley Cup. But on top of that, I shouldn't be denied going out for recess. That's what they would say. That punitive um, tactic should not be implemented. And a lot of this discussion about restorative justice came as educators were trying to figure out how to stop, especially in the inner city, the what they call the school-to-prison pipeline, where kids are constantly getting in trouble, constantly getting suspended, and the next thing you know, they're out on the street, and they're getting involved in criminality, and now they're, instead of being in suspension or in school suspensions, now they're in prison. How can we stop that? How can we address this? So, I, yes, I would agree that that is a honorable thought like their honorable reason to do something differently but will that approach work in all situations in all communities even with does it will it work with all students that's really the question is it one approach of many or is it the defining approach? And I think people, and I'll, I'll show this in some of the documentation that I've read on this and even listened to on podcasts as I prepared for this episode, you'll, you'll see that people who are proponents of restorative justice basically say you have to buy into it. Every single person needs to buy into this approach or whatever platform you use. And sometimes... These approaches aren't called restorative justice. There are programs set up, maybe teachers in your district have been asked to attend sessions on you know, neo-restorative justice practices. When, whenever there is the issue of, we don't teach consequences. That would be leaning towards a restorative justice approach. And there are some things that, as I talk about this, you know intervention. I think we're all into intervention. Discussion, you know, restorative justice will make a key point of talking about building relationships with the students. Well, who doesn't? I mean, even one podcast I was listening to a guy who is very big in the RJ movement, that's what they tend to call it, just to make it easier, restorative justice. You mean hit RJ is restorative justice. He said, he goes, Yeah, a lot of schools do things like like we have an advisory program at my school where you get groups of kids together to talk. They're not necessarily best friends, but they're talking with other kids and building relationships with the teacher, building relationships with each other. So a lot of schools do this already. So so the restorative justice piece, what I would say is really the lack of consequences because there are other pieces to it that can be done and still give out consequences, like the building of relationships. Or if there's a kid who's misbehaving, send them to the guidance Counselor, and they can talk through. Maybe there is a problem going on at home. They are acting like that's the one thing you'll keep on hearing that bad behavior is just a form of communication. Okay, that's that's a fair point. They're communicating something, and maybe there is something. A, a, there's a trauma. There is that's happened in their life. There is a problem going on at home. Maybe there is really no home life for the child. And yes, the school needs to dig deep and find that out. But that's not restorative justice. That's just a school doing its job. You know, the, there's guidance counselors exist for a reason, and that's the reason. So, what I'm going to focus on here is the no consequence piece. Because a lot of the other things that RJ promotes are things schools can do without having a restorative Justice approach to um, discipline. And one that I believe many schools are enacting without a restorative justice um, approach. Now, two of the articles that I read on restorative justice claim that the ideas come from indigenous people. They differ on what indigenous people. One article said it came from native. American tribes in the Minnesota area. The other said it came from the other half of the world, down in the South Pacific, in New Zealand, the Maori people. You know who the Maori people are. They're the natives of New Zealand. Whenever you watch the New Zealand soccer teams or rugby teams before a match, they'll go to midfield and they'll do that dance, that war dance. It's really a neat cultural thing. If you've never seen it, you should look it up. But my point here is... It makes sense in their environment. You're talking about a tribe. You're talking about a group of people who share common ancestry, common cultural beliefs and practices, common beliefs, be it religious beliefs and thoughts or worldview. They share all these things in common, and it's easier to do an approach when it's In a sense, built into you from the day you were born, from your family and friends and your neighbors and your leadership. But there's a problem in the United States, and it's the problem of diversity. You know, schools will often proclaim our diverse, you know, our diversity is our strength, right? They always say diversity is our strength. But here is the problem, even with that quote. Now you're saying that everybody needs to buy in to this practice. So you're denying diversity by saying we need to be unified. It works within a community where, again, common ancestry, common culture, common beliefs, common worldview. But it doesn't work when you bring that out into a community that has different ancestry, different cultural pieces and acts, different worldviews, different beliefs. And again, I, I think it misses that home approach. And I'm not knocking it, and I'm not saying that it wouldn't work. What I'm saying is that it denies the idea of diversity. Some communities that may not be necessary. Some communities may need the consequence approach. Again, it's there's a there's a big difference in communities where You have kids going home to two-parent households, and kids going home to parents never-around households. And how are you going to handle discipline? And again, the buy-in from home is going to be vastly different. You know, a lot of times in education, educators will see something, and I wish they were a bit more Amish about things. They see something. They see that it's working in certain situations and they don't ask themselves, but will it work in my situation? Will that work here? They just buy into it. And it's not just in discipline. It's with a lot of things. It's the shiny new thing. Everybody has to have it. It's why when Apple announces the iPhone 27, everybody's like standing out online the next day getting ready to buy it. We have to have it. We have to say that we're on the cutting edge. Rather than sometimes saying, no, we're, we're going to be standing firm on this old, what you see as an old, tired approach. Because the old, tired approach actually works. It has years of development, years of working out the, the kinks, and years of success. But instead, we want to promote that we're doing the latest and greatest. And, you know, so that's just a couple of concerns just off the start. The other thing is you'll hear this often with RJ practices. We've cut the number of suspensions down. Well, when you don't have consequences and you don't suspend people, of course you're going to have less suspensions. That's going to be a natural result. Because you don't have suspensions. That would be like me. Let's say in the last year, I drive through a town called Traptown. Right, And I got three speeding tickets in Trap Town. So I'm talking to a friend the next year, and he hasn't seen me in a year. He knows about the speeding tickets in Trap Town. And he says, hey, have you gotten any tickets recently from Trap Town? And I'm like, no. In fact, I haven't had a speeding ticket in Trap Town in over a year. And my friend looks at me and goes, that's great. So you've stopped speeding. And I'm like, oh, no, I still speed. I just don't drive through trap town anymore, right? <laughs> if you don't give out suspensions, of course your suspension rate is going to drop. Or I should say, you only use suspensions for the worst possible thing. Right? You, you've kind of... And I don't have a problem with that. I always think that too. Some teachers do quick go to the um, nuclear option. You know, years ago, I was talking to a friend, his wife, um, his, her, their daughters were all, like at that point, they had a high school daughter, a college daughter, and a daughter out of college. And they decided that the wife was going to do some substitute teaching to you know, get some extra money. So she was asking my opinion about classroom management. I was giving her some ideas. And I said, you know, I rarely, what I rarely do is send some child to the principal because I say that Because I want them to know that what they did, I can't handle in the classroom. It's beyond me. That there is going to be a consequence now of you having to go see the principal because that was bad. So she asked me. She goes, "Oh, so you're saying that I should never send a kid to the principal?" I said, "Oh no. I think the first kid who acts up for you, you send to the principal. You make a point that that kids that will not be tolerated." See. The substitute and the regular teacher are on two different planes. <laughs> and the substitute needs to establish right off the bat: I'm not taking any nonsense. You don't have the time to build a relationship and set a classroom culture out. Now I was listening to one podcast about suspensions, and the guy was kind of right. He said guy, he was very he was pro-restorative justice. He was a leader in it, and he said, "What are you gonna do? Is you suspend the kid? What are they doing? They're gonna go home play video games. Parents don't even care." Again, that's the issue of there's no parental buy-in. So why are you doing an out-of-school suspension? Make them come into school, have a place where they have to go. Make it an in-school suspension. But one of the problems with the story of justice is they don't want to take away things from kids. Like you don't take a you don't take away you no know, recess time. You don't take away. You don't keep them after school. Why not? They've taken time away from your classroom when they shouldn't have. I think, that, I think it is restitution. And that's where I'm going to head towards. The other thing they'll say is, well, it can't be a one-day seminar. It has to be something that every teacher does consistently. It needs to be part of your school cult- culture. Restorative justice it needs to be the key piece or a, or a key piece in the culture of your school everybody needs to be on board or it will not work and what that again what first thing is it denies the fact that each teacher is unique each classroom setting is unique each community is unique i personally believe that how i discipline the classroom is based on my personality on my where my limits are How I want the culture of my classroom to be. And that may be vastly different from the teacher next door to me, teacher across the hall from me, because we're each, it, it, it recognizes that we're each unique individuals with unique personalities. I think this all or nothing approaches deny that. And again, it denies a principle that we've been hearing about schools for this generation diversity is strength. Well, obviously not in this situation it isn't because you're telling us all you all have to buy in to RJ, restorative justice approaches or it will fail. That reminds me of a movie from 1992 called Leap of Faith with Steve Martin. The movie's about a faith healer. Steve Martin plays the faith healer who goes around with his entourage to little towns across America and he's a con man. He really isn't healing anybody. They use little tricks and deception, but what will happen is people will pour money in it as signs of their faith. In that town, there is a sheriff. And actually it's the first movie I remember seeing Liam Neeson and He plays the sheriff. This town that Martin comes to has been experiencing droughts, a farming community. These people are poor. They really don't have any money. Liam Neeson realizes it's a scam. He opposes the faith healer being in the town. Of course, the people want it because it gives them hope. Liam Neeson understands that, but he realizes this is a scam. It's a false hope to have. And there's a tension between the sheriff, Neeson, and Steve Martin. In the movie, there's a young man. He's a teenager who has to use crutches to walk, and he wants to be healed. He has faith that he will be healed. But Steve Martin, knowing he's a scam and, and generally enjoys this young man and talking with him, doesn't want him coming forward because it will reveal he's a con artist. So it's the last night of the revival. The young man comes forward with his crutches. In the back of the revival is the sheriff, Liam Neeson. His name is Will. Remember, he is doubted. He's been trying to talk to the community that this guy, Steve Martin, the faith healer, is a con artist. And... So now he's, the kid is on the stage. Everybody knows the kid. Everybody knows it's a legitimate handicap the kid has. And now Steve Martin is going to need to come up with something that will be his excuse of why this kid isn't going to get healed. You ask for one more demonstration of the Lord's kindness. One more show of faith. Well, that's what this is about faith you gotta have it or you can't get healed if there's any doubt in your hearts the lord cannot deliver his healing if there's even one among you who doubts like you brother will i know you have doubts but even you must believe because this boy's chances of walking are in your hands right. Amen. now i'm not going to ruin what happens it's actually a pr- i love what happens next, and I'm not going to ruin it. it. It actually is a topic that I could talk about, just talking about this movie in terms of my own um, Christian faith, because it, it's a great. There's actually a great um, scene that comes up right after that talk, and but I'm not going to spoil it. You should watch the movie and and see what I mean, and you can email me after you watch it. But the point I'm trying to make here is I hate that approach. If everybody isn't on board, it's not going to happen. That's, that's what I'm hearing and what I'm reading when I look at restorative justice articles or listen to podcasts. Everybody in the school community must be on board or it will not work. If the program is that valuable, if, it, if, if its practices and actions that you take work, it will work same thing here if it was truly from God and not from a con artist then it will work but it's a, it's a con artist that's doing it and I'm not saying that people are doing restorative justice are con artists I'm not what I'm saying however is that is a con man's line to say that everybody it will as everybody knows not everybody will be on board that's just a reality of it Um, there will always be contrarians like me I guess who will have their doubts and you'll denounce the people with the doubts like Steve Martin denounced the sheriff Liam Neeson will with his doubts so I I just don't like that approach Hey, are you enjoying what you're listening to? Am I making any points? Do you think others need to hear this? Please feel free to share out this episode as well as the podcast. Tell your friends that they can go on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast on any site that delivers podcasts like Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Type in the Parent Teacher Conference podcast and look for the guy with the coffee mug covering his mug. Or you can just share out the link to this episode as well. Also, if you have any questions, you have any points of agreement you want me to know or, or any points of disagreement, please feel free to email me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's P is in parent, T is in teacher, C is in conference podcast, 411, all one word, Podcast 411 at gmail.com. Now back to the episode. Now, the second part of this episode, I am going to give you what true restorative justice is, and I truly mean a restoration in this point. Now, one thing I do want to address, restorative justice often talks about shared power. You know, one article I read, I heard a teacher saying this, um, when I reflect on my earlier years of teaching, I remember wanting to have power. I wanted students to sit when I said sit, stand when I said stand, and line up and walk down the hall exactly how I wanted to do it. I, you know, as a teacher, I never thought of that as, like, power. Like, I, I wasn't, like, power hungry. It's not the reason why I want students to sit still or be orderly. You know, think about fire drill. Kids always ask, why do you need to be quiet during a fire drill? And I said, you practice it as if it's going to happen because when it does happen, you'll know exactly how to behave. And you need to be quiet if there was a real fire, a real emergency, so you can hear instructions that will save your life. And I always use this example. I have a friend, good friend of mine, and he's a listener, so hopefully you're listening um, to this because you'll know who you are in a second. I have a friend who is a police officer. He's recently retired. And he told me about the first time, or one of the times that Actually, you say, the first time he used CPR on a person, and the person lived. In fact, when they drove the person to the hospital and he got out, he was waiting around, and one of the doctors in the emergency room actually came out and said, I just want you to know you saved that man's life by giving CPR. And the one thing that impressed me, other than the fact that my friend is a hero for being a police officer, but the one thing that impressed me about... um. That he said, that's I should say, made an impression in my mind was he said, All those, every two years, you have to do CPR training. And and I do as well as a coach. And you do it, you do it, you practice it, right? And he goes, He said, Kevin, when you actually have to do it on somebody, you do it, it becomes second nature. And it's the same thing like lining up for a fire drill. You just, if you practice it right when it you need to actually do it, it's second nature. And that's why you practice anything. Like, you know, that's why in baseball, I would constantly just practice defensive drills and you know, have the whole team out there, hit the ball, and, and look where everybody was positioned. Everybody hit the ball to the right side. I want to know where the left fielder was. You know, hit the ball to right field. Where are you in the left field? Just make sure you're where you're supposed to be in case with the ball goes to third. So that way in the game, you naturally do it. And there's a need, there's a need for compliance in the classroom. We all can't, every kid can't do what they want to do in the classroom. There'll be, in a sense, societal breakdown in the classroom. There needs to be laws and there needs to be structure. So I, I don't get that line about power because I don't see it as a draconian power move by most teachers. It's you, you need all that in order for the classroom to function. I think they would agree with that. But then they talk about hierarchy and power structures and that they're shared power. And I think that's one of the reasons, when, earlier I mentioned teachers are quitting, why teachers are quitting. I think that's one of the reasons. You know, the person says this, a restorative approach seeks to create relationships where power is shared. It is philosophy that takes into account that all humans inherently possess power despite their social ranking. This is not to negate the importance of leadership because we all are called to lead in the various domains of our lives. But a leader working through a restorative lens understands that their role is not to manage or control the behavior of others. And I I said this in an earlier episode, that person has never been a coach of a team you know when you look at that approach of the classroom like it's a team you have a purpose right? a team has a purpose to do they the best they can in games right the classroom has a purpose that students do the best they can in the classroom there is a hierarchy and it's by necessity there's a hierarchy you know and why am I sharing power with a person or child who we all know scientifically their judgment center of their brain isn't fully developed until they're 25. It seems like it'd be malpractice if I share power with them. And again, it's the idea that I think at times there are straw men's created. That's one thing I was linked to one podcast, and what the person did was only address like the worst teacher. They, they made a straw man of the worst teacher possible, who's in it to you know, kind of get back at all the kids who bullied him or her as a child, and they're going to give it to the kids who gave it to them, and they're going to have rules that are and be uncompromising, ungracious, unmerciful in their approach. <laughs> right? No, most, te- majority, 99% of teachers aren't like that. But yeah, that's the straw man argument they, they approach, and we need to share power with our students. Now, I'm not, you know, I always say to my students, Your class is run by a dictator. He's a benevolent dictator. I'm a good dictator. Sometimes I'll ask you for your opinion, and I do ask them for their opinion. I have what's best for them in mind. Sometimes they enjoy it, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're going to enjoy it, and sometimes they don't. They're kids. You know, it's like, I think if you talk to a lot of people about the discipline of their parents, going back to parents, they will say, yeah, I didn't like it as a kid. I didn't like my parents, ta- you know, grounding me or taking something away from me because I misbehaved. But I'm sure glad they did because it turned it made me into the person I am today. Setting those limits, making those boundaries, and having consequences was a good thing. And I gotta be honest, I believe some of these teachers, where they create a straw man. Like I said, there are probably some teachers out there who are teachers in terms of getting back. I'm not going to deny that. It probably does happen, but I think it's really rare. But I think it's also, we would have to say, and I think this is really rare of people on the restorative justice side of things, that there are people buying into restorative justice because they were the disciplined ones and they never grew up. They never understood the point of the discipline, the point of the consequences. So they think that a consequence-free school would be beneficial. I'm going to share this Bible verse. I, I think it's a great verse about this whole topic. Um, it's Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I think we can all agree with that, right? Whenever you've ever been punished or having, you know, punish them. It's a harsh word. Let's say, con- again, suffer consequences for your bad actions, right? It, it's not, it's painful. You, you don't like it. It's not pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. As you grow up, as that judgment part of your brain starts developing, when you have more experience and wisdom, you realize the point of it. You realize it was for your good. You know, one thing that i've shared on past episodes and i'll i've shared with my students i've shared with my children sometimes the most loving word that you can hear from me is the word no i tell my students sometimes the most loving word you can hear from me as your teacher and your parents is the word no and we need to get back to that mentality again that discipline consequences is a form of love. And you're like, how can it be love? You're punishing them because we don't want them to continue on with that behavior. And there's another reason for the consequences. It isn't just to benefit the child. You know, restorative justice talks about restitution, making restitution. Well, what about the restitution for the time taken away from that class? You know, a lot of times this is brought out, okay? In fact, one of the one in some I gotta step back a little bit. In some of the articles and podcasts I listen to, one thing that was brought up is that you need more support staff, you need more guidance counselors basically to make this work. Because here's the reality: kids acting up in class, it's not being solved by me just asking them to stop. I pull them out of the classroom to talk with them. Where am I finding the time to deal with that kid one-on-one? Where where am I finding that time? I have, let's say it's a classroom of 20, I have 19 other kids. Now I'm out in the hallway, you want me to break this down, I have 19 other kids, something else could happen while I am dealing and focused on this one child and trying to do restorative justice practices with them. The reality doesn't work. And I think this is what is frustrating a lot of teachers. You say, all oh, be nice, share the power, reduce my hierarchy in the classroom no i think what needs to re, be rekindled is the i this idea when you a student walks into the classroom the teacher is in charge the teacher is the big kahuna they are there for your best and for the safety of everybody else so the purpose of the classroom could be accomplished To learn the content, to understand the content, to develop maybe an enjoyment of even of the content. And anything that takes away from the purpose needs to be dealt with. Yes, there needs to be compliance for the purpose to get done. You know, I think there's a move away from public schools a lot. You know, why is there people are there people leaving public schools? Some are trying homeschooling, some are going to private schools. I I think if you ask a lot of parents, some of them will say, a good number will say the discipline issue. I want my child learning in, his learning in a safe environment and public schools mock private schools for their ability to kick out students. And public schools have to be available to all. I get that. And that's the conundrum that we're having, isn't it? What happens if you have kids who just don't want to learn, who don't want to accomplish their goal in the classroom? Maybe instead of forcing them to conform to the classroom setting, Maybe there has to be another classroom setting for them. Rather than, I know a lot of schools are trying to save money by not sending kids to out-of-placement learning situations. And they're bringing them all in. But that what is that doing for every other kid in that classroom who do, do want to learn? So it's just things I'm throwing out here. I don't know what the solution is on that. But let's get to the classroom. When there's a disruption in the classroom, that affects the other 19. If there is no consequence for the child, here is what happens. The other children will say one of two things. One, wow, if they got away with that, I'm going to do this. That's human nature. Or two, What's the point of being good? I don't get it. That kid does whatever they want to do. I want to learn. You, you'd be surprised at how many kids for the disruption kids, they're afraid of them. They'll never say that. I've heard teachers get little notes apologizing for the behavior of their classmates. They don't want to, they don't want them to know they, they're not again, they, they don't want be in a situation of speaking out. They're afraid to. But yet they see students getting away with things that they know are wrong. It's not respectful to the teacher. We really need to go back to the idea that the teacher is the leader in the classroom, just like the principal is the leader in the school. And i I got to be honest, I don't think that this is necessarily an admin issue either. I don't think it's that admins don't want to give out um, consequences. I think their hands are tied as well. I think it's just a mentality we're having. We need now, if we're going to restore anything, we need to restore this idea of respect of elders. Now, my dad always said, "I'm not saying you need to like every teacher. The teacher might not be a good teacher, but you need to respect that teacher." And that's something we need to get back to in, in society. But what we have not society is that everybody's angry. You can say whatever you want. You can be rude as to whoever you want. And I think honestly, that's perpetuated by social media where you can text, you can tweet, you can post angry statements about people you don't even know in the rudest, vulgar way, and it's it's applauded. It's as applauded as if you're being because you're being genuine, you're being authentic, it's the real you, it's raw. And I think we need to restore the idea of do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. I think we need to restore the idea that with age comes wisdom, and that is deserving of respect. That's what needs to be restored. And how about respecting the other students in the classroom? What about their rights? We always talk about the student who misbehaves and their rights and their need to be in the classroom and needing to address the behavior that they're... Um, or the, commu- the, mis- the what they're communicating through their misbehavior, right? We're, our focus is always on that child. But what about the majority of the kids who are complying, who are listening, who are respecting the teacher? What about their rights to learn? What about their rights to be safe in school? What about their rights to not have to worry about disruption in the classroom? What about their rights? when When do we restore that? And what is the restitution when that is deprived of them because you want teachers to deal with the small number of misbehaviors without consequences? Again, like I'm telling you, listen to why teachers are quitting. That is situation numero uno. And parents, if you're listening, maybe you need to go to board meetings instead of complaining about this issue or that issue. Start complaining about how are you addressing misbehavior in the classroom? How are you addressing bullying? How are you addressing this? And what are you doing to those students who are doing? Because my child isn't, and they want to learn. And they want to be safe in school. And they deserve that. Sadly, though, I think this is where the powers that be want to go. Talk about power, right? It's kind of funny that... The people who are for restorative justice, I wonder if they'll listen to people who will push back. What about share? You know, it's never about shared power when you're the one in power saying this is what's best. Because, again, like I'm saying, I, I wonder how many of those teachers who are frustrated are in schools that are practicing restorative justice. You know, and, and, and how many of those teachers who are leaving schools because they're frustrated with the lack of consequences and the continued problem with behavior are leaving and the people who are um, teaching or promoting the restorative justice culture just chalk them up this malcontent. Well, they were never buying into it anyhow. I'm glad they're gone. Rather than saying they're sending a message, they're actually making a point here, maybe we should step back and look at things. I, you know, and that's something I struggle with, and we all struggle with, that we will quickly chalk up negative points and views to something that we hold on to as it tax and be defensive rather than saying, let's look into this. Maybe I do have to change. But I think in the broader society, we're seeing this same issue, right? Think about um, how police officers are no longer respected because there's a rotten few. Every police officer I know are good men and women who are doing a dangerous job to protect us. You know, the whole idea, and, and think about it. A couple of years ago, there has been push in cities. We need to decrease the number of police officers and raise the number of social workers if that isn't restorative justice I don't know what is and then you have cities that are raising I think it's the amount of money for a felony with stolen goods and so what was happening people were breaking into stores and stealing up to that amount like if it's $900 they would steal up to $800 and they wonder why stores are deciding to leave cities that are enacting these policies Almost what they're saying is those people can't help themselves. They, they're, they're expressing, they're communicating by their theft. They need stuff. And I, I don't know. I just think that on one, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? That I've always talked about these two views of human nature. Either evil comes from outside of you and enacts upon you. make you do evil acts or evil comes from within you right and the people who will say that evil is from society around you because you're you're basically good you always want to do good but this there's evil around you are the ones saying well they have to act out like that they have to steal you know their communicate their misbehavior is a form of communication they don't know any better And I'm the one who's saying, who I say, no, evil starts from each one of us, and we have to kind of rein it in. I'm the one that's saying, no, I expect better. We do have to rein it in. We have to rein in those bad decisions that we want to make. That's not just in the classroom. That's in the family, and that's in life. Yeah, it doesn't, it's, you know, talking about, like, we're going to stop suspensions. We're not going to, you know, No kid should be deprived of recess for acting up in the classroom. But yet, at home, that's how we deal with our daughters. If they do something wrong, we take away things. No, you're not going out with your friends tonight. No, give us your cell phone. Give us your device. You're not going on that for a couple days. We want you to know what you did was wrong, and there is discipline for that. There is a consequence for that. So you know, and of course... The more severe the consequences, more, for more severe the bad choice. And why do we do it? Why do I do that to my daughters? Because I love them. I'm not apathetic. I don't care. I don't want excuses made for them for bad actions. Oh, they're just communicating something. No, I want them to be known as fine, upstanding women when they grow up. I want my students to be fine, upstanding men and women when they grow up. It's out of concern that we do it. Not because I'm on some power ego trip. And and again, you'd be surprised of how... And this is not a liberal conservative issue at all. Trust me. I work with teachers. I'm friends with teachers. They are all over the place on the political spectrum. And the vast majority uh, would agree with... Most of what I said today in this episode, there is a genuine frustration among teachers about this idea that lack of consequences is a good thing. It is being pushed. Is your school district pushing it? I think the other reason why teachers don't like it, personally, is because it's a blame the teacher situation no longer is the child a problem and it makes sense right if your attitude going in is that evil comes from acting from the society around you and the child is basically good in fact some people say the child is more pure because they haven't been affected by society yet so what's the determining factor of their misbehavior ah the teacher The teacher is doing something wrong. We need to teach them how to be better teachers and better people because that kid isn't the problem. The teacher's the problem. So we're going to put them in this course. We're going to make them watch videos. We're going to make them do these seminars to make them, because they're the problem. Well, the kid, we're just going to talk to them for a couple minutes and send them on their merry way. So who's being disciplined here? Who's having the consequence for misbehavior of students? The teachers are. Because they're the ones being blamed. And that is frustrating as all heck. I wouldn't have lasted over 30 years in teaching if my goal was to just discipline. Again, disciplining a child is the worst part of my job. I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish everybody would just listen, do what I ask, and enjoy the classroom, and enjoy the subject, have a passion for history. I think the vast majority of teachers would agree with me that disciplining a child is the worst part of the job. But it's necessary. It's necessary in order for the classroom to function as it should. It's necessary for the majority of those students in the classroom who want to learn, who are listening, who are engaged with you. And it's for the best for the child. As I said in the Bible verse that I read from Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'm going to end the episode with a story. 25 years ago, um, my wife, my newly married wife, got into medical school. Now we were living in Connecticut. I was teach a teacher in Connecticut. But this medical school was Seton Hall, and it was in it's in New Jersey. And I had no problem moving back. That's the state I grew up in. But obviously, working in Connecticut would be really difficult. We actually thought about it. How I could get to work if I lived in northern Jersey going over to Tappan Zee every day. It would be a pretty like an hour and a half commute. Um, and we decide against it. We decided to move. So of course that meant I had to go on job interviews. And I was interviewing at a high school, public high school, in a town just outside of Newark. It's a suburb of Newark, New Jersey. Very racially diverse high school. And here I am, a white guy. I'm interviewing with a white history department head. Head. And um, so we were talking. It was a great interview. Um, he was a great guy, and he decided to give me a scenario. He said, okay, Kevin, let's say you're teaching a U.S. history course, and it's you're talking about slavery. It's It's the antebellum, pre-Civil War period, and the slavery topic comes up, and you're talking about it, and a black student stands up and says... F you, Cullen, he didn't say F, he said he dropped the bomb. He, he said, F you, Cullen, you don't know what you're talking about. And he goes on to explain the hardships he has as a black, young, teenage male, drops a couple F-bombs along the way. He goes, how would you respond to that? Well, I told him I would pull the child outside, I would you know validate his views, because obviously that's his experience, and... Obviously, I don't have those same experiences. So I would find where I agree with him on the topics that, on the issues that he brought up. But bring it back to nobody's saying that slavery was right and I didn't say that. He goes, yeah, and he kind of played the role of the student and, you know, and he's like, that was a great response. He's, he, he actually praised me. He goes, that was great. He goes, you addressed everything. You addressed his concerns. By the same time you brought up what you were teaching, he goes, I would have taught the same exact way. Great job, but you missed one thing. I'm thinking, he goes, do you know what it is? And I'm thinking through I'm like, no, not, I, I can't think of anything. And he said, the kid dropped some F-bombs in the classroom. And although... You're right. He has the right to share his opinion in class. You want to encourage him to share his opinion in class, always. At the same time, he needs to do it properly. You need to have a consequence for that F-bomb. Because if you don't, you've just taught the class that not only do you have the right to share any opinion you want, which is commendable, you've also taught the class You can use any vulgarity you want in expressing it, and you can't have that in the classroom. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students, but good parents love those students, their children, deeply.